Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. I'm excited today because my guest is Marianne Williamson, who many of you know as a New York Times bestselling author, as well as spiritual leader and political activist. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Marianne, it's great to see you again, and uh, it's always fun to chat with you. And thank you for uh, agreeing to be on my podcast. Well, it's always great to see you, and I'm excited to talk to you, Jim. Wonderful. Uh, I guess, actually, you were just earlier on uh, being interviewed. Maybe you can tell us just a little bit about that. There is a streaming channel, uh, MSNBC, on Peacock, a man named Eamon Moyhadeen. And he was asking about Biden and Biden's agenda and how I see the Democrats right now. And I just can't help myself, Jim. I just have things to say, and I just can't keep myself from saying it. Well, I have the same problem sometimes. So uh, uh, speaking of that topic, then tell us what you have to say. Well, we have midterm elections this year. And right now, the president's approval rating is not very high. And there is a feeling among many that he has not provided the American people with the kinds of things that, to be honest, he promised. A lot of people will say, well, you know, he was obstructed by Manchin and Cinema, not to mention the Republicans, not allowing him to uh, pass the Build Back Better bill, all of which is true. However, he has tremendous authority via executive power an executive order should he choose to use that power. He could declare a national medical emergency due to COVID and expand Medicare to everyone. He could do that today. He could eradicate college loan debt of 36 million people. He could do it today and more, actually. I think he's, I think he's written off already 15 billion, right? If he has, there are still 44 million people. Do you know Absolutely. what I'm saying? There's still 40 million people, actually. No, I totally agree. So, you know, he could declassify marijuana from a Schedule One drug today. And I find it very disturbing. We are still supporting Saudi Arabia in a war against Yemen as much as we were before. The president has continued the Title 42 immigration work of Trump. He has permitted as many oil drilling permits as Trump did. So I find it very concerning because given the performance of the president so far, I think that the chances are increasing every day that the Republicans will win in 2022. And the problem, Jim, is not just that Republicans will win, it's what kinds of Republicans are winning. I mean, there are 50 Republicans running for Congress who are known QAnon participants. So this is very, very serious for our democracy. This is much bigger than Democrats versus Republicans. I'm not tied, you know, I, I'm rather skeptical of the entire duopolistic system, which is more of a monopoly than a duopoly, no matter who's in power. Big pharma basically gets what they want. Insurance companies get what they want. Big ag, big, big oil, big chemical companies and defense contractors. Absolutely. However, if we do not show up as a real antidote to the authoritarian measures of the other, the other side, then we could be inviting a disaster really almost unimaginable for this country. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think potentially if those types of people, you know, it's always interesting how the charge will be cancel culture. You don't let us communicate, but invariably that will be become the biggest cancel culture and yeah. stopping of free speech ever and fundamentally lead to the collapse of democracy. And so much of that, you know, Obama had chosen not to prosecute Assange. Trump brought back uh, prosecutorial action. We were hoping that Biden would go back to Obama's policy. And yet right now, Assange is in terrible conditions in Belmarsh Prison in England. And the Biden administration is trying to get him back here to put him on trial in Virginia. So this is no record of celebration of the free press. This is the squashing of, of the free press. This man exposed atrocities, horrors, murders back in 2010, which if in fact we had actually 
thought about, reflected on, and acted on, maybe the last 10 years of, of spectacular failure in Afghanistan would have been avoided. No, I can't argue with you. Uh, that's, of course, uh, another disaster, this withdrawal, but of course, initiated by Trump. And and then uh, Biden had to make a decision. You know, some of these things are very depressing, and it's not clear why certain decisions are made. Now, certainly there are many decisions that I agree with uh, uh, by Biden, but, you know, he hasn't really tackled many of the problems you're talking about, and I'm not sure why. One of the things that fascinates me is why are we having, we cannot find anyone, and this is not necessarily criticism of Biden, but, you know, we have two individuals in their 70s vying for political office. Why don't we have these young, inspiring individuals who take uh, leadership roles and who aren't afraid to speak out? I think, you know, of course, one of the problems is there's this terror that people will find out you're not a perfect human being and pull skeletons out of your closet, right? Well, I can't speak to what the answer is in terms of the Republicans. But in terms of the Democrats, the answer is because the Democratic Party eats its young. The Democratic Party has worked vociferously to squash the main energy of its young, which has basically been in the Bernie Sanders-type progressive wing. And they have been treated like errant children. So the Republican Party embraces and courts its base. And the Democratic Party treats the most energetic aspect of its own base almost with derision, almost like they have to audition to get in, but then expect those people to show up and vote for them when election day comes around. And that's why you have, if you look at the elected officials in the Democratic Party in Congress and Senate, you're talking about people in the late 70s, in their 80s. They're not creating, if you have the Dianne Feinsteins, and of course you see this in Chuck Grassley as well on the Republican side, you know, it's one thing in your career, in my career, where you and me being there doesn't take away from somebody else having a chance to be there. But when it comes to political office, there's only one of these slots or there's only two of these slots. So at a certain point, you move over. I'm 69 years old. But I think that there are responsibilities that come with age, not just mentoring, but making the space for. And when it comes to these politicians who keep running after the age of 80, this goes along with these policies that thwart the dreams of the young, not not canceling these college loan debts is an example. You're thwarting the dreams of tens of millions of American young people. All these young people who are in jobs that they hate because they have to be there just in order to get the health care benefits, you're thwarting the dreams of your young people. Not making college free, you're thwarting the dreams of your young people. What is this? You and I are parents, and we know that your job is to set your children up to win, yeah, that's your job. And that should be the job of the parental generation and the older generation in the society to set our young people up to win. And everything from crumbling schools to lack of, of uh, paid family leave to uh, lack of universal pre-K, all of which I understand was in the Build Back uh, Better. But this has just become such a fundamental flaw in the way our politics and our political system in both parties uh, more than not works. Uh, meanwhile, they will give the defense industry anything they want at any time. I feel, Jim, that people, you know, I live here in Washington, and I feel that people in this town do not realize how late the hour is. No, I think that's right. Uh, and it's unfortunate. You know, it, it always amazes me how the other nine largest first world countries are able to give free health care, free school, all of these other benefits, which allow for human thriving. And somehow, and I don't know if it's because of this narrative of uh, rugged individualism in the United States, that, you know, they have to do it on their own. And this denial, as an example, of critical race theory or the teaching of the truth of our democracy, which is one of imperfection. But somehow, and I don't know if it's white fragility or what it is that people can't face up and say, look, you know, we did horrible things. It's not directly me, but uh, that being said, we have to acknowledge it. I, I don't think that it's the culture war that's the problem. We don't have universal health care, not because of some people's idea of rugged individualism. That's just the propaganda. We don't have universal health care because of the dominance of the influence of the 
insurance companies. We don't have affordable drugs for many people, even insulin, life-saving drugs. I'm sure you see this every day because of the influence of big pharmaceutical companies. We don't have a safer environment, a healthier environment because of the dominance of the big oil companies. And we have such a militaristic foreign policy because of the dominance of the defense industry. So I think that they use the culture war issues to distract us almost from the real problem, which is the corporate ownership of of our Congress and White House. You know, our Congress is a system of legalized bribery at this point. Now, if you look at where the American people actually sit, let's take something like universal health care. Four out of five Americans want universal health care. Nine out of 10 Democrats want universal health care. The problem is not with the American people. And all this culture war stuff is created as this kind of fairy dust in front of our eyes to actually make us think that it's all about fighting each other when, in fact, your fellow citizen is not your enemy, rather than looking up and seeing who's doing it to us. And that's all of them. I think you're right. I think, though, also we have a media that thrives on divisiveness. That's because it's a profit-making media, you know, but even that, you know, we used to have a fairness doctrine uh, before 1987. It was the Telecommunications Act in 1996 uh, that, that, that created this corporate monopolization of our media so that now the news industry is a profit-making industry. It's not about curation. It's not about the wisdom and the clarity of a Walter Cronkite. It's about whatever's going to get the click, whatever's going to get the algorithm, whatever's going to get you watching. Well, and I think you're watching also the number of uh, different outlets coalesce into five companies, I think it is, or a very small number. Well, that's the corporate conglomeratization I was talking about. You know, when you and I were growing up, Jim, before the Telecommunications Act, the same company was not allowed to own a town's newspaper, a town's radio station, and a town's television station. It was codified into law that we honor diversification of opinion. So the same articles that used to get a reporter a Pulitzer Prize is liable to get that same reporter fired today because that reporter comes into his editor and he says, or her editor, and says, you know, I got a big scoop. The factory down down river is spewing carcinogens into the water. And then he gets a call, kill the story. Why? Because the factory is owned by the same people who own the television station. Uh, you've probably seen that uh, uh, example where they basically show like 20 or 30 TV stations all with the exact same story and the same narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And it's fascinating. You know, you'll have 30 different stations saying the exact same thing, the same terminology, and it's just reading from a sheet that corporate tells them to read from. And no, it's, uh, but I, I totally agree with you, whether it's uh, big pharma, whether it's insurance companies, whether it's uh, military industrial complex, And this is also the cause, I think, of uh, income inequality. You know, there's a structural system that allows the wealthy to get wealthier and to the disadvantage of the poor. You know, when you sit there and say the the fairy dust or whatever, I think, you know, this narrative of um, the reason you're poor is because there's an immigrant who isn't paying taxes or the reason there's high crime is because black people you know, uh, they can't function in society or whatever the narrative is. And uh, and it's horrible because none of this is true. And as you point out, I think most Americans are in the middle and they want things that help them, which is free health care or free education or maternity, paternity leave and things like this. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how to uh, get around that. And uh, well, You know, it was bad policy that brought us to where we are, and good policy will take us back to where we need to be. In the 1970s, the average American worker had decent benefits, could afford a home, could afford a car, could afford a yearly vacation, and could send their kids to school. And that's because they had a living wage. They had a living wage, and we had a fair taxation system. So starting with Reaganomics and this idea, this just give all the money, deregulate, give all the money as much as possible to the small stockholder class. And then remember, it was that they were going to create jobs and all that money was just going to trickle down and lift all boats. Well, after 40 years, it's very clear. It did not lift all boats. It left millions of people without even a life vest. And so there's been this massive transfer of wealth. So what you have to do is repeal those those policies. The 2017 tax cut, uh, $2 trillion, 
gave 83 cents of every dollar to the highest earners and corporations, uh, put back in the middle class tax cuts, stop it with these subsidies. You know, Martin Luther King had a line. He said, if they give it to poor people, they call it a handout. If they give it to rich people, they call it a subsidy. That's exactly right. You know, the the gargantuan military budget that's so many hundreds of billions of dollars more than our military even says that it needs. So these these are not mysteries. You know, the Republicans started this and no Democratic president stopped it. Joe Biden isn't stopping it either. But I feel we will either have an FDR, somebody who comes in and says, okay, we're going to write this ship. This ship is listing. And we have to take measures that might seem drastic, such as universal health care, canceling the college loan debt, free college. They might seem drastic to some, but they're actually the modicum of what is necessary just to right the ship. And if we do not do that, Jim, I think we're getting very close to a situation where we're either going to have an FDR or we're going to have a Hitler. Yep. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And and it's terrifying. So on that note... <laughs> We have a tendency to go down these <laughs> rabbit hole. You and me. <laughs> uh, the person's past often predicts their future, or certainly has a lot of influence. Um, maybe you could tell us about growing up and how you ended up being a anti-war demonstrator, activist, and sort of lost in a circle of drugs and hippiedom. <laughs> Well, my drugs and hippiedom was no, no different than anyone else in my generation. I mean, I wasn't a. I'm not an alcoholic. I, my sex, drugs, and rock and roll year were very much just what my generation was at that time. You mean it was just a year? No. Did I say year? No, I didn't. I, no, it was more than a year. But it was just that generation. It was that time of my life. But my parents were wonderful people. My father was particularly magical. He was like a cross between William Kunstler and Zorba the Greek. So, for instance, when I came home from school in the seventh grade and said that I had been taught in school that day that if we didn't fight in Vietnam, we'd be fighting in the shores of Hawaii. My father stood up. He told my mother, get the visas. We're going to Vietnam. And he took us to Vietnam to show us the truth, saying that he would not let the military industrial complex eat his children's brains. Wow. That's the kind of, you know, my father used to wake up in the morning, walking through the house going, beat the system, kids. Beat the system, kids. I tweeted the other night. It wasn't until I was 50 years old that I realized how not kidding he was. Well, you know, though, it's it's that type of an attitude which uh, calls it the way it is, right? And I, I think that's part of the problem is very few people are willing to stand up and be absolutely direct. You know, they try and uh, hide it in different terms or try to protect people. There's a line you often see online these days to say the quiet part out loud. When someone does say something direct these days, somebody is liable to make a comment, he said the quiet part out loud. And so I think we're living at a time, it's just like an alcoholic home, I don't need to tell you this, the whole society is like an alcoholic home, where the kids can feel mommy and daddy are both nuts, something's not being said here. And you have that underlying tension and anxiety of so many unspoken truths. That's one of the reasons why I think Bernie Sanders was so popular, and why I think he would have become president if he'd been given the chance, because he he said the quiet part out loud, and people were yay. Somebody, you know, and you and I both know the ameliorative power of just someone telling the truth. Can we please just tell the truth of what's happening here? Well, the thing was, he was consistent with his message, right? I mean, he has not wavered one iota versus you have politicians whose statements are related to the latest poll versus, you know, saying this is the truth. It's always been the truth. I stand by this. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was so popular. Exactly. Because people can see authenticity versus bullshit. And uh, uh, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he would have been very powerful because I think people on both sides felt that he told the truth, was authentic, and wasn't in it for himself. And I think this idea of authenticity and showing your vulnerability and who you are, and not saying you're perfect, but saying these are the truths I live by, not what the pollsters tell me I should live by. And, and that's why I think so many people are so cynical. I couldn't agree more. And I think that if we don't start telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing about the truth, 
then we will not deal with the nefarious aspects and the shadows of this country that are part of the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And it will continue to lead us along a trajectory towards something worse than Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, I, I think this idea about the truth is, just to briefly talk about cancel culture, uh, look, I mean, many of the people, or the two aspects, there's a subset of individual who on some level was extraordinarily popular and successful, who had significant dark side and made multiple mistakes. You could look at Churchill as somebody like that, but they're revered for other things they've done. And there's no one who's pure or perfect and everyone has a shadow side. And this is not to say, you know, you condone murderers, but you also are realistic about who they are, what are the positives, what are the negatives, but it doesn't mean you tear down every statue everywhere, except in those places where that statuary was created uh, or these monuments were narratives to promote racism or fear and divisiveness. And I certainly can understand that, but I think the reality is, you know, we're human beings and we make mistakes and sometimes we make more than one and sometimes we do it over. But, you know, uh, hopefully the, the people who are heroes, we understand that, but we look at their positive aspects and respect them for that because uh, it's like one mistake, as an example, doesn't necessarily, it can, but it doesn't necessarily mean every bit of good you've ever done in the world is negated. Well, these days, people are being brought down because of something they did in the very one bad hour out of a whole career. I mean, people have been brought down by ridiculous tweets that they've made. Yeah, you know, and I think that too. I think everybody realizes this has gone too far. But society, sometimes this is how, it, whether it's in our individual lives or a society's life, sometimes you go very far in two directions before you get to some moderate golden mean. No, I think you're right. I mean, you'll see politics will go this direction, it'll come back all the far, and then it'll come yeah. back in the middle, and then the, another party will take it uh, 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 far. So, Yeah, people are be hopefully beginning to see the difference between pulling down a statue of Robert E. Lee and pulling down a statue of Thomas Jefferson. Exactly. No, I think that's, uh, uh, that's exactly right. Um, getting back to your earlier days, I think actually, was it in Vanity Fair you said something like it was a lost decade or something like this? But tell me about uh, how you intersected with the course in Miracles and how that changed your life or perspective uh, from the point where you came across it, how you were before, and then how it affected you. Well, I was always very interested in spirituality and religion and philosophy, and I was always interested in Eastern and Western, esoteric and traditional. It could be uh, Kierkegaard and Schopenhauer, or it could be the I Ching um, and the tarot cards. I was always interested in anything of the higher mind. We were in a generation, I mean, you woke up in the morning, you read Alan Watts in the morning, you went to an anti-war protest in the afternoon. It was part of the cultural revolution at that time. But as much as I was interested in all these things, I had a decided inability to apply the principles that I understood intellectually on a practical basis. You know, one of the things I most appreciate about your own work is that, that recognition of the partnership between the head and the heart. In The Course in Miracles, it says enlightenment begins as abstract intellectual concepts, and it takes a journey without distance from the head to the heart. It wasn't until I read The Course in Miracles in my mid-20s that I began to understand things, not that I can say I hadn't read before, I probably had read them before, not that The Course has some monopoly on truth, but there was something about the way The Course says it that I went, oh, I get it now. I know how to apply it. Namely, the person in front of me, and do I or do I not have judgments? Namely, that in this moment, am I or am I not showing up? And so forth. So it meant a tremendous amount to me personally in terms of the healing of my own heart. Not that I was, I didn't have any one particular, you know, when I was a young woman, I lived with a heroin addict for a couple of years, not knowing he was active at the time, because he was going to NA meetings every day. So I didn't realize he was active, but he was. So my experiences in those years with Al-Anon and so forth, gave me a lot of understanding of those principles. And I would apply them. But for me, it wasn't a particular addiction. It wasn't a particular, it wasn't drugs. It wasn't alcohol. It was just my personality in general, you know. 
when I started the course, it made such a tremendous difference for me personally. Now, at that time, there was no career niche such as I came to inhabit. I never dreamed when I started lecturing on the Course in Miracles that it would make me a living. I mean, you know, suggested donation, $3. I was a temporary secretary at that time. It was driving my parents nuts. But this is what I love doing. I just wanted to get up. And, and remember when I first started doing the course, I had a night where I had this thought, I could explain this to my generation. And then from there, a book emerged. And during the AIDS crisis, in a very real way, gay men in Los Angeles and New York gave me my career. Because my starting to talk about a God who loves you no matter what, miracles, coincided with this horrifying epidemic. And things just unfolded from there. I never saw it as a career path because, like I said, the niche didn't even exist. Then what started to happen for me, and I got very fortunate, Oprah Winfrey liked my first book and so forth. But what I started to see happen about 20 years ago, Jim, and I always was interested in politics. I always considered myself an activist. I cared about things much like you. You know, you're a neurosurgeon, but you know, you get, you're talking about politics and you're, you know, I, I, you and I are very similar that way, right? But what I started seeing about 20 years ago was I had a career helping people in critical moments, the proverbial acts of God. Uh, they're diagnosed with cancer. Their child is on heroin. They went bankrupt, et cetera. I was used to that. I felt blessed and privileged to have the career in order to bear witness to people suffering in such moments. But I began to see something in this country change around 20 years ago. And that was how many people were living through dire circumstances who had not been struck by an unfortunate act of God. They were good people who woke up every day and tried their best. What they had been struck by were the results of bad public policy, that no matter what they did, the system was so rigged against them. And that was when I realized it's not enough for the system to continually oppress. It really has gotten to the point of economic oppression of so many millions of people. And then to say to someone like myself or therapists, hey, you fix it. It's like now they call it a mental health crisis. Now, the mental health crisis, mental health crisis is the despair, the rage, the, the tension, the anxiety that people are feeling because they're stuck in these conditions that are so difficult. Politicians used to say to me, well, what should we do about the mental health crisis? And I used to say, stop driving people crazy. That was that's one thing. And that's when I began to feel that so strongly, just like when you and I were talking a few minutes ago, that the entire society is like an alcoholic family system. If you understand whether because of AA or Course in Miracles or psychotherapeutic or religious, spiritual, whatever, if you have a deeper understanding of how consciousness operates within the journey of one person, you begin to see that the same thing is happening in the life of a nation because all that a nation is is a group of individuals. So that's when I began to feel moved to speak more in terms of the collective. We call that politics, but all it is is this collective behavior. I still do the individual work. I still teach. I still It's still certainly the basis of my own individual life, my own personal life, that I do the course every day, that I meditate, that I do transcendental meditation, and my work. It's how I make a living. But I still, having run for president, I retain deep concern that I know you share that we cannot only heal our own individual lives. We must heal more of the wounds of our society or as individuals, we will be hurt no matter what. I, one encouraging thing I think that Biden did do when he came in was he made at least his narrative much more inclusive. It wasn't about the well, we're going to exclude the Republicans from this uh, versus we're all Americans, let's work together. But I think it is tough, and I think it is horribly sad to see how we have created our, you know, people in our country. I mean, uh, you know, there's the middle class has been decimated. We still have a minimum wage, not a living wage, which, of course, you know, if you're living on a minimum wage, uh, you can't even take care of yourself, much less a child. There's no place in America 
where you can afford a two-bedroom apartment on a minimum wage salary working 40 hours a week. Absolutely. And, and this is the horrible thing because what I find extraordinarily sad and disconcerting are extraordinarily wealthy people in business who says, well, there should even be a, a, a minimum wage. We should be able to pay them whatever we want. I mean, what kind of thinking is that where you would even think to do that? It's like I was in a conversation with the CEO of a private prison, and he said, well, I don't want them to repeal the three strikes law or to uh, decriminalize marijuana because that'll decrease the number of prisoners I have. And I go, what sort of sick thinking, dude, are, are you engaging in? I mean, this is the absolute most reprehensible thing. And you know, talking about a living wage versus a minimum wage, you know, I mean, these people can't afford a car. They have to take a bus. They have to wait for things to get done. They can't afford a minimal crisis in their lives. Even in my own situation, I'm sure yours, you know, your life is made somewhat more convenient. You, you have a car, you drive, you can afford certain things, you can afford a home. And, you know, imagine a situation where you can't even dream of that. You're just working so hard and you're barely making it and you feel like no matter what you do, you cannot get ahead. And that's what I find so troubling. And the thing is, it's, you know, I think you'll agree, we look at the prison system where we have the highest level of incarceration of any westernized country per capita. Any place in the world. <laughs> there, yes. Uh, but I would say, you know, when you look at the, and I visited and spoken at multiple prisons, when you look at the people who are there, the vast, vast majority of these people are not bad people. They're people who did not have love, care, a compassion towards them, and they've grown up in broken homes because of this whole despair about barely making it in America. And of course, if you have no supervision as a child, you don't have the opportunity for education. And somehow, parents are working so hard that they, you know, they're only left with somehow the school system supposed to teach children morals and ethics and behaviors. You know, it's not fair to the teachers either. And the people who we do live our children in, we barely allow them to make a minimum wage, right? The teachers, we don't have any respect for them. So it, it is, a, uh, I think, a big challenge. Well, in your book, Into the Magic Shop, you make it clear that you experience many of what would be called today adverse childhood experiences. And the vast majority of people in our prisons have multiple adverse childhood experiences. We have 2.3 million people in prison today. When I was in college, we had 300,000. Now, going back to the CEO of the private prison industry, that's a sociopath talking. That's a sociopath talking who is saying, my uh, bottom line is better served by other people suffering. My corporate bottom line is better served by other people being treated unjustly. My bottom line is better served by something that, that only speaks to the decline of American civilization. Now, not only do we have a problem that that man and others like him has no problem building a profit center on human suffering, but we have a U.S. political system that he controls, that does more to serve his bottom line than it does to serve the health and well-being of the people of this planet and the animals and the earth itself. This is unsustainable. Absolutely. Uh, we just had our Stanford Sea Care and uh, University of Edinburgh. We did a project uh, during the UN COP26 called uh, Realizing a Compassionate Planet, which talks about basically the, the need for us to treat the planet kindly, too, in addition to ourselves. And, uh, you know, if you look at the planetary boundaries, there are many things that are out of sync. And, uh, you know, even that's significantly disconcerting. And among a, a lot of people, I think especially Generation Z and millennials, this is creating a lot of existential angst. I mean, what is the future for these people? I think that is a big challenge. You know, we talk about these ingrained corporate behaviors that fundamentally are uh, made by oftentimes extraordinarily rich individuals. And there's a great quote by Tolstoy, which I actually will sometimes use as a statement of how Davos works. It's, uh, there's a man on your back choking you. Uh, he acknowledges he's on your back choking you, but at no time does he ever offer to get off your back and stop choking you. And that's what we see here. It's like, <laughs> yeah, so, okay, this is bad, this is bad, but they do nothing about it. And they'll do n never do anything that will impede their ability 
to benefit from engaging in their behaviors. The reason the situation is unsustainable, you mentioned a couple of instances. You mentioned Biden's inclusive language, and you mentioned the COP conference. Young people are seeing through it. I don't care that his language is inclusive. Enough with this performative bullshit. I mean it, really. You look at uh, BLM, which was the largest protest movement in the history of the United States. There has not been one single fundamental legislative change in response to it. The civil rights movement got a response in the form of the Voting Rights Act, got a response in the form of the Civil Rights Act. You had a president, you had a Congress who made sure of it. Here, what have black people gotten? They've gotten Juneteenth turned into a federal holiday. When you talk about the COP conference, it's almost sickening to hear you say that part of the conference was a panel on compassion for the earth. Well, isn't that interesting how social justice language and considerations have been co-opted by big oil? And the hundreds of thousands of people, mainly young people who are outside the conference, know that. Greta Thunberg and others, they know that. Not one serious fundamental change. And one of the ways they cover themselves is having things like panels on compassion for the earth. You know, this, this is what I mean. We're now living at a time where people are saying the quiet part out loud. And young people aren't buying it, Jim. Young people aren't buying it, the idea of these incremental changes. And young people are demanding more because, like you said, what kind of future do they have? I'm sure I don't need to tell you this. You know, when I was running for president, I used to do this. I used to say, every room I'd go into, I'd say, who in this room, and I would do this all over the country, okay? I'd say, who in this room is either someone who has said or has heard a young person say, I'm not going to have children? Not because I ordinarily wouldn't, but because I honestly think it might be an immoral thing to do because I don't know if they would be able to breathe in 50 years. And every room I went into, a few people would raise their hand and I'd say to people, look around the room. I would say, Jim, that in every room, I would say that the average of hands lifted were maybe a fifth of the people in the room. And I would say, this is not normal. This is not normal. These are blinking red lights. You know, I had lunch with a gentleman today in a wonderful organization that does wonderful conflict resolution work. I mean, he's a great guy. But he said, he said, I am a radical incrementalist. I said, well, guess what? It's too late for that. That would have been a wonderful line in 1995. Our president is an incrementalist. It's too little, too slow, too late. Jim, I think people have no idea how close the masses are to the gates of the Bastille. Well, I mean, that's the other thing is, I, I, I mean, you know, we have an extractive society. And as an example, you look at Amazon with uh, people having to pee in bottles. And, and the uh, union busting. Why should he care? Jeff Bezos has so much money. Why should he care? It's never enough. Never, it's never enough. It's never enough for the Elon Musk. It's never enough. And, and I think when it comes to Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and... I think they showed their hand during the pandemic, during the worst aspects of the pandemic, in ways that proved to people, particularly the working class of America, the working class of America looked and went, they actually don't care if I die, do they? I admit I went into it. I went into it thinking, well, you know what? I bet some of these mega billionaires are going to come together and say, this is life and death. And they're going to say, we're going to handle it. And there will be no hungry people. No, they made it clear. They made it clear. Well, uh, and you know, this is the sad thing because I, I find it interesting. There's depending on which side you fall on uh, the right or the left, there's a billionaire class that they all know each other. They all hang out. And they all pontificate, but none uh, of them give away much of their wealth comparatively, which I find horribly sad. I mean, you know, whether you have two hundred billion or fifty billion or whatever, what can you possibly do with that money other than destroy generations of your own family by having so much money? You know, uh, Elizabeth Warren and others have called for a wealth tax of two percent if you have over fifty million. And 3% if you have over a billion. So I said, I said to a woman who works in my office yesterday, I said, get your calculator out. What's 2% of 50 million? It's $100,000. Yeah, it's nothing. Jim, to, if somebody has 50 million, 
and they're fighting it so hard. Yep. I don't get it. By the way, not every, we know this, just in case anybody needs to hear this, neither you nor I are saying that every rich person is a greedy bastard because they're not. And I know some billionaires who agree with what you and I are saying. Well, I agree with you. But, you know, when people sit there, because I'm always interested in where the super wealthy will say, well, you know, you're trying to redistribute income and it's not fair. Well, that's what I've said. No, they're the ones who redistributed wealth. They've been doing it for 40 years. They completely stole. This is massive theft. This has been a massive transfer of wealth from the middle class. No, the redistribution of wealth was what they have been doing for the last 40 years. Exactly. Well, it's sort of like the Trump statement of a uh, stop the steal. Well, it applies to you, dude. It doesn't apply to <laughs> others. Uh, We'd be glad to stop the steal. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, wow. Well, let's see. <laughs> Have anything happy to talk about? You know, you and me, the, the compassion love people. And then to see what they did. Uh, well, it's not to place blame. It's just a sad statement of how human behavior and the reality that, and I hate to say this, that most people can be manipulated to place the blame elsewhere, which is what uh, I think the, the corporate America or the wealthy have done. You know, the question is, at some point in an extractive society, and I call it ruthless capitalism, they finally say no. The question is, that no, how is it going to manifest? Is it going to be the teardown of society and anarchy? Is it going to be a bringing together people and demanding change in a very forceful way? Is it having a person who is looked to as an honest broker who's interested in everyone's welfare and who has the charisma and force of character to demand change and stimulate people behind them? I'm not sure which way that's going to go. Well, I think our task is to be both death doulas and birth doulas. There is a world that is dying. It is going to die. It is falling apart. The only question is whether the change will be a painful, violent one or a wise and tender one. So we need to become citizens very concerned about creating a just transition, a just transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy, a just transition from a war economy to a peace economy. This change will either come through tenderness and wisdom, or it will come through violence and suffering. But the change is coming. It's not up to us what we learn, only whether we learn through joy or through pain. No, I think that's right. Well, let's switch to another wonderful topic. Uh, okay. <laughs> what should what would you suggest we talk about that you have optimism about? Well, I have optimism about everything that we talk to, have talked about because I believe in miracles. I believe that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I believe people are waking up, and you know how you know you talk about twelve steps. You know you have once you hit the floor. Once you, your knees hit the floor, that's not when it's over. That's when it all begins. So I am optimistic. I don't think there's any question but that we're going to get it right on this planet. The only question is how much human suffering it's going to entail before we do. You know, even if this, you know, it's like my environmentalism friends will say, don't worry, Marianne, the planet will be fine. It just might have to kick us off for 200, 300,000 years. Well, once again, to even imagine the levels of suffering that would accompany that scenario. And we must develop just a quality of personhood that is most necessary now. Qualities like courage. And you and I are both parents. Anybody who is a parent, especially if your kids have gotten old enough to be teenagers, know what happens when this fierce thing rises inside you. And usually it's around drugs, sex, alcohol, where you say with such conviction and certitude, that will not be happening in this house. Now, the joke is you don't even know what you do if they challenge you at that moment, but you are so convicted that they go, whoa, mama not letting that happen, or papa's not letting that happen. We have to become that way about our planet 
and we have to become that way about our democracy. I believe that there is a readiness. I believe that people are open even to many of the things that you and I are talking about today, who if they had heard it even five years ago would have said, well, that's a little, I don't, I don't think it's that bad. Oh, I don't think it's that bad. Today, people realize, oh, yes, it is. Some people say an emotional and psychological civil war has already started. People are having very intelligent, serious, legitimate conversations about whether or not we will have one. So the good news is, you know, there's this thing about Americans. It's like Churchill said, you can always depend on Americans to do the right thing after they've exhausted every other option. Americans are world famous for getting there late, but we're also world famous for slamming it like nobody's business once we do. So I would not count us out yet. I see an awakening. We're living simultaneously in two worlds. One is the fall of Rome, and one is a new world that is struggling to be born. They're both happening. They're both happening. There's Trump, what Trump, it is January 6th, and there's your book. Both. You know, somebody told, mentioned to me yesterday that Cornell West had said, MLK was as American as apple pie, and so is Donald Trump. We have always been both. We have always been both. I'm optimistic because I have seen such good in people. I'm optimistic because when I read books like Into the Magic Shop, I know that stuff works. I saw you wrote so beautifully about how those principles redeemed your life. And I believe that those principles will redeem this nation. We just need a critical mass. We don't need a majority. We need a critical mass. And I feel it happening. And that's what I'm optimistic about. Well, you know, I think in some ways, I, I always say it's a choice between fear and love, right? Uh, it is a choice between fear and love. You know, if you open your heart and have love and acceptance and forgiveness and gratitude, this allows magic to happen, right? Mm -hmm. It makes you connect with people and inspires people. It, it allows them to be their best selves. It allows them to recognize their own humanity and the humanity of others and think of, if you will, our common humanity. Now, the unfortunate side is that there can be individuals who promote fear, and it's a race to the bottom. And that's the horribly sad part. But I agree with you. I'm optimistic that there are enough people who care. There are enough people who love. There are enough people who see the common good. There are enough people who are pained by suffering and want to alleviate that suffering that uh, there is hope. Because if you and I didn't think there was hope, there's no reason for us to, you know, continually to try to push this uh, stone up the to the top of the mountain because it's, you know, it's heavy lifting sometimes. But it's one that there's a reason for it. And the reason is that that narrative actually gives us the power to wake up every day and continue the struggle, I think. Well, I think hope is a moral imperative. I think the moral arc of the universe is long, but it does bend towards justice. You know, Gandhi had a line where he said, whenever I despair, I consider the fact that the most evil people in the world have never ultimately prevailed. Evil has never ultimately prevailed. And our generation needs to toughen up, Jim. We're not going through anything other generations haven't gone through, but we are not just the inheritors of a legacy of shadows and problems. We are also the inheritors of a legacy of problem solvers. We had slavery in this country, but then we also had the abolitionists. We had institutionalized suppression of women in this country, but we also had the women's suffrage movement. We had segregation in this country, but we also had the civil rights movement. What we're going through now is just our, it's just our turn. But let's not be the first generation to just wimp out with nihilism and cynicism and overpreciousness and over you know, people say to me, but I'm so traumatized by it all. And I always ask them, do you think that the people who walked across the bridge at Selma were not traumatized? Do you think that the women who were marching for women's suffrage and were then thrown into prison because of it, for whom the prison conditions were so terrible that they went on a hunger strike, the response to which was 
men coming into their cells, forcing metal contraptions onto their necks to force feed them. You think they weren't anxious? Toughen up, buttercup. That's really what our generation is asked for now. Data collection. We have the data. The era of data collection is over. The issue now is how courageous are we willing to be? How blunt are we willing to be? How serious are we willing to be? How much truth-telling are we willing to do? How much derision are we willing to take? How much mockery or, or assault on us because we do what we're willing to take? And how much are we willing to stand together with those who are making the same efforts that we are? That's really what this moment is about. Will we or will we not create a field of possibility that allows the magic to happen? I think it's possible, and I'm standing, I'm standing on that. Because otherwise, I'm giving in to the thought that on our, gener- on our watch, this whole thing goes down. And that's unacceptable to me. Well, let me ask you a question. Does this uh, portend a future run for president? I don't know. A lot of people are thinking about it. Not everybody who thinks about it does it. And you don't, you don't put yourself through that lightly once you know what it entails. I certainly won't do it unless I could mount a campaign worthy of the effort. So that won't just be my decision. I think it will be what I feel in the energy coming from a lot of people. Either the wave is there or there's someone else to carry that banner. I just want to, I want to serve the process in whatever way would be best, whether that entails my running for anything or not, I am not yet sure. Do you have any individuals who you think that can also carry that banner? Well, of course, Bernie is getting up there in age. He hasn't told us what he's planning to do. I certainly don't have any inside information, but I think given his age, it's realistic to assume he might not. I don't know. I keep looking on the landscape like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I'm very concerned with now is doing whatever I can to promote non-corporate-backed congressional primary candidates uh, for the 2022 election cycle. So I have something called CandidateSummit.com, where we've vetted and endorsed all these really amazing candidates around the country who are so great, but because they're not backed by corporate interests, they're not backed by uh, traditional political corporatist uh, forces— they are, in many cases, not known by their constituents the way they should be. So on February 16th, I'm joined by some of my colleagues, and um, we are going to be doing a live stream. And I certainly hope that you and your listeners will tune in, because I want to introduce people to these fantastic candidates who are running and really deserve our support. And if we want the kinds of changes that you and I have been talking about here, we need to support the people who, if they get to Congress, would actually make the changes. And can you just repeat that website? CandidateSummit.com. Okay, perfect. Far more people in this country love than hate. I think that's true in the world. But those who hate today hate with conviction. And conviction is a force multiplier. So if you have 100 people who are loving, but in a kind of casual, when it's convenient kind of way, and you have 10 people who are hateful and do whatever it will take to effectuate their worldview, you're in trouble. So we all need to harness, harness all this love for purposes of social and political good. And it's a serious task that lies before us. But I think enough people, like I said, are recognizing that now and are willing to step up. No, I agree. And uh, uh, again, unless we believe this, it would be hard to do the work that we do every day, I think. Yeah. I mean, where there is love, miracles occur naturally. I mean, your book, What Were the Odds?, I mean, all the material forces were stacked against you. But nature organized itself in such a way that your trajectory would be changed. And I believe that it is an intentional universe. You can call it the mind of God. You can call it the universe. You can call it nature, whatever you call it. I believe it is intentional. I think every cell in the body is guided through natural intelligence to collaborate with every other cell every once in a while. A cell disconnects from its natural intelligence. That's obviously cancer. 
It's a malignancy. And I think the same thing has happened to the human race. We have been infected by a malignant thought. And that thought in consciousness is the same cancer as what happens in the body. It's an individual self thinking it's all about me. An individual self forgetting it's not just about you. It's about you collaborating with others to serve the healthy functioning of the organ and the organism of which you're part. But in, in society and in civilization, just like in the physical body, there is such a thing as an immune system. And the body can take a lot of injury and a lot of assault and a lot of sickness if the immune system is healthy. And I think that what's happening in the civilization is that we're all awakening to our immune function. That we're all here to be immune cells at this point. And I, I mean, clearly the race is on. It's a race for time at this point. But so many of us have been prepared. I can't believe it's all for nothing. I mean, look at your life. Look at your book. Look at mine. I mean, and there are millions like us who... I don't know. I think I've been prepared for this moment. I think that's true. That being said, though, a lot of people like to, as an example, point to my trajectory and say, well, see, anything is possible, no matter how horrible it is. Well, it's sort of an unfair comparison because it's percentage-wise, the likelihood of somebody with a similar trajectory is extraordinarily low. I think, though, that you don't have to go all the way here. You can be extraordinarily successful simply by being kind, being caring, loving yourself. And it doesn't matter what job you do. You know, my children say, uh, you know, we go into these discussions about, well, should I go to college? What should I do? My statement is, look, if you help one person... That's enough. And if, if each of us keep trying to reach out and help those who we can have an impact on, whether it's from writing, talking, being of service in some other way, each of those acts, I think, uh, uh, really can turn into a wave of action. We just have to create the circumstance for that. And because there are so many people who are suffering, yet these are the same people who, if you can just give them the inspiration, give them a helping hand, uh, can really uh, understand the true power that they have within themselves. I think we want to be careful. I think people want more than the opportunity to be kind. They want the opportunity to spread their wings. They want their opportunity to be creative. They want their opportunity to soar. Look at your life. You, did, you had more than the opportunity to be kind. You had the opportunity to get this incredible education. You had the opportunity to become a doctor. And I think that there are so many, including the people that you mentioned in prison and people living in their cars who were born with the same potential you were born with, same potential I was born with, kids who are living today the life that you lived as a child, and... We need to think more than just let's be kinder to them. We need to think in terms of really recognizing that the entire fundamental economic and political system in this country is inherently structured to keep them where they are. And it is wrong. It is wrong. Uh, listen, I, I, I totally agree with you. But uh, when I say kindness, I don't mean the... Uh, well, we need public policy to be kind. Exactly. You know, three strikes and you're out. Your prison system friend says, oh, I like three strikes and you're out. It is such an unkind policy. Exactly. And that's why I'm talking about kindness and compassion in public policy. Right. Our environmental policies, extracting oil, fracking, the lack of reverence towards the earth, the lack of devotion. So at a certain point, it's a quality of character, whether it's lack of devotion and reverence towards other people, lack of reverence towards animals, lack of reverence towards the earth. The point is the commonality is the lack of reverence. What has happened within us? What is happening within the mind of anyone who says, actually, I want all those draconian laws because I'll make more money? Well, and, you know, the sad thing about that, of course, is, and I'm sure you've had the same experience, that you see some of these people who spout that narrative or who have become incredibly wealthy, and they have all sorts of problems. And many of them are miserably unhappy, and they keep thinking because so much of society looks to 
the wealthy. And the reason is because they're under the false impression that if you're wealthy, that translates into happiness and fulfillment. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, can they align? Potentially. But again, the emptiness that so many people feel and the reality that uh, people look up to them, then sort of showing off having conspicuous consumption and having pe people go, gosh, I want to be like you. They think that's going to fulfill them, their emptiness and sustain them when, of course, it's empty calories, if you will. And the only thing that will do that, frankly, is love and uh, caring for others and being of service. And that's the only thing that will fill that emptiness, in my opinion. Well, I agree with you, and I think most people do. I do, too. It's always fun to play with you. Thank you for having me on. Till next time. Oh, it's a joy. Same to you, my dear. Wonderful seeing you, and take care. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Thank you.